Well, there is a, a concept in church planting, church growth, and church leadership called the homogenous unit principle. Now, don't let that, those big letters or the big words fool you. Homogenous simply means that something is the same. And, and so the idea that, that is created out of this is that church leaders uh, from a few decades ago took this idea and said that the churches that grow the fastest and the largest are made up of people who are, in essence, the same. One of the most well-known experts in the church growth movement was a man named Donald McGavran. He was a professor in California. And he focused on missions, and it was his experience in India that made him think this way. And, and he said that uh, people who uh, generally would stay with people who were just like them. That they're attracted to people who look like them, sound like them, come from the same background, the same socioeconomic class. I think we've all understood this, that we see this in the world, that most of you have said birds of a feather flock together, right? It's a pattern that we as Christians, though, shouldn't be following. I hope that to answer some of these questions as we move along, whether this is an appropriate way to view the world from a, a Christian perspective. Now, I think that being around other people that are similar to us makes sense because it makes us feel comfortable. None of us want to seek out discomfort in our lives. I've never met someone who says every day they wake up, I just cannot wait to be uncomfortable today. When we see throughout the Bible that the Christian life is a life of discomfort, we have to think. Is what we're seeking after, is that what we ought to be seeking after? I want to see if this is the pattern laid out in Scripture. I want to see if we're supposed to live comfortably or if we're called to live a different way. Like last week, this passage that we just read this morning uh, is one that we would normally, as if we're reading scripture, we would just kind of blow through. There, there's, there's not a theological punch in this passage. It's not Romans 8 and 9. It's not Ephesians 2. It's, it's not, there's not a punch to it. It seems more just like a story, a narrative of telling us what's happening in Paul's life. It's still God's word. But it doesn't contain the doctrinal feast that we get from other parts of scripture. However... I think there are truths to be mapped in this passage. My aim this morning is to teach through Paul's words to show you that whether he fully understood it or not, he is modeling what a faithful shepherd and a faithful Christian does in their life. He's giving us a model to follow after for everyone, not just pastors, not just church plants, church planners, not just missionaries, all of us. Now, I know I've said this every Sunday in our study, and so I'm going to re repeat this again. Paul is writing to the local church. These are a, a gathering of believers that he's writing to. And over the years in ministry, you, you'd be surprised at how many people don't quite understand this or don't fully grasp this. Knowing who the recipients of a letter uh, is will help you to make sense of some of those difficulties in Scripture that we, we struggle with. 2,000 years is a long time, 2,000 years in a different language, in a different culture, it's hard for us to grasp 
what he means in this passage. But if we understand the recipients, it starts to open our eyes up some more. And Paul is writing to a group of gathered believers, people who have given their lives to Christ, people who have uh, come together to uh, become part of a, a church, something bigger than just themselves. And Paul's writing to the church. And he says this in verses 5 through 9. He gives his plans for travel. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's been corresponding with this church for quite some time. He, he's been correcting many errors, so it would be natural to think that as he's writing this, he's angry. These people keep driving me nuts. These people keep saying things that I've corrected them over and over again, and they're not getting it. What's wrong with these Corinthians? And if he doesn't do that, maybe at the very least, he'd start to ghost them, to not respond to their letters, to ignore them. But Paul is pastoral. He doesn't do what most people would do with people who are frustrating. He says, I desire to see you. So after all of this grief, after all of this trouble that the church in Corinth has given to Paul, he says, I can't wait to see you guys again. From Corinth, from Macedonia, is not an easy trip. You can imagine the map of Greece. Uh, uh, Corinth is close to Athens, down in the southern end of the peninsula. Macedonia, which is its own country now, but, but there is a, the, the upper part of Greece and the northern part of the country is uh, uh, Greek Macedonia. It would have been about 300 miles by land, and if he went by sea, which we assume he did, it still would have taken some time. It's not an easy trip. It's not just going down to the local grocery store. They didn't have cars. They had ships and camels and horses. But this is what Paul did. Paul traveled. He discipled believers. He trained pastors and elders. He planted churches. Now, how could he do this? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it would be better for Christians to remain unmarried. And you say, well, wait, whoa, how is that? He remained unmarried so that he could fully commit himself to the work of the gospel. Now he says, I know that most of you won't be able to do that, but it would be better if you could so you could devote your entire lives to the work of the gospel. When you're married, your responsibilities change. You can't work 80 hours a week and still expect to be present in your kid's life. You can't travel constantly and expect to still be uh, uh, present in your spouse's life. It's just not possible. I thought about this too this week, that uh, the importance of my own family. My own family will always come before this church. Always. And I hope, you would, I hope you would understand that. It's not an excuse. But that's the most important thing in, in my life. And, and every line of work, though, carries the danger of becoming an idol. I've met people who do all sorts of work and across the field, and they have a tendency that it can become an idol. But ministry is strange. And I'll give you an example. And think about Paul's life here, too. You and I are part of this church. But this is also where I work. This is also where my friends are. I don't have close friends 
in East Tennessee, outside of this congregation, have a lot of acquaintances, but not the close friends that know me well. So this is this church is my job. It's the place where I worship, and it's the place where all my friends are. It's this weird mix that comes with ministry, and it's so easy for someone in ministry to, to make ministry an idol. Especially when there's so many people coming and listening to me talk, man, this is, they're coming to hear me. And Paul's traveling, he's got a name, people know who he is, people are requesting help, they're writing him letters and saying, help us work through these things. And Paul's only able to do it because he's single, he doesn't have a family. His singleness was his ability to travel and to have a huge impact on the church. He could devote his entire life to the work of ministry. And so he says, I want to spend a significant amount of time with you, Corinth. He says in verse 6, he may even stay the entire winter. He stayed in Ephesus more than two years, so it's not as long as that. But an entire season with a group of people who've caused you so many problems is quite a while, isn't it? Still a long time. Now, applying this to our lives. What does this teach us? And you say, wait, Paul's only just telling what he's doing or what he plans to do. You can't get any truth out of this. Yes, you can. Well, for pastors, our church has five of them. This passage shows us that being involved in the lives of the church members is essential. You can't love someone you don't know. And so leaders in the church must spend time with members. And I'm so grateful uh, that we have men who are elders who know you and know you well. Faithful men. With only five pastors here, you may think that you're off the hook. You may say, well, Paul, Paul is in ministry. This is his full-time vocation. He, this doesn't apply to me. I'm just a regular church member. Not so fast. This pattern that Paul is giving is for all of us. You cannot be a productive member of a church if you do not know your fellow members. You cannot be productive if you only know people who are just like you. The church in Corinth was diverse. It's caused major problems in the church. We see this in Galatians too, that all of this ethnic division and, and you have people who were Jews and people who were Gentiles and now uh, both have been brought into the same household uh, by faith in Christ and they're bringing their baggage with them. All the history of not liking one another and now they're called to unite, but not only unite but to serve and to sacrifice for one another. Ethnic divisions, racial divisions, different backgrounds, different ways to, to worship God before they came to know the true God. But all of this showed that God is greater than those things that cause division. Paul stayed extended periods of time with churches because he cared about the people. He cared that they grew in their knowledge and love of God's word. Now I'm not a church growth expert and I honestly don't care much to be one. Much of that is designed around giving people what they want rather than giving God glory and what we all need. But I often hear from you, and I'm with you on this, I want to see the church grow. I hear that regularly. And just know I'm absolutely behind you. I want people to come to know the Lord. I want people to join with the fellowship where they'll grow and where they can serve and, and where we can affect the nations. I want to send people out. I want to train pastors and train people to go out into churches in the mission field. And I want to train you and you train me to serve the Lord right here and right now as missionaries in our community. I want to do that. I want to see this grow. 
And even though I'm not a church growth expert, I'm convinced that there is a way for our church to grow. But it's not what you think. It's not when we change everything and turn the lights down and add a couple smoke machines. It's not when we sing songs that have just been written in the last three months. It's not, it's not when we have screeching guitars or, 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 or uh, people with really cool hip clothes that I don't understand what they mean when you buy holes, jeans with holes in them for $300. I don't get that. But that's cool. It's trendy. But I'm convinced that there are two things that we would need to do to grow a church. Number one, when we as members, every single one of us, share Christ with people often. Step one of growing a church is us, every single one of us, going into the community and talking to people about Jesus. You want to grow the church? There you go. It's not difficult. It's difficult to do, not difficult to understand. And the second thing that I'm convinced if we want to grow the church is when the members in our church build relationships with one another, people who are outside of our normal circles of influence. I mentioned the second reason, because people outside of the church will, over time, see that church is doing something different. Those older people are spending lots of time with those younger people. The, the, those younger people are seeking out older people for their wisdom. And yeah, they may have differences and different outlooks on life, but man, they are united. Church, the world sees that. Your neighbors see that. Can, can you imagine if we have members in our church who are 80 years old and every single week they're inviting younger people over to their house? Their neighbors, your neighbors see that. What in the world are these 25-year-olds coming over to these 80-year-olds? What do they have in common? The world notices that. It recognizes that. It's attractive to those who are outside of the church. So if you want to grow, I think those are the two things. And, and just so you know, the opposite of growth is not decline. The opposite of growth is comfort. I'm convinced of that. You get comfortable, you stay in the same spot. You aren't challenged to expand. You stay where you are and where you're comfortable. Comfort is the enemy of church growth. Look at what Paul did for the kingdom. Look at all, think about all the things that Paul did. He traveled constantly. It didn't seem like he had a permanent place to live. He planted churches through endless evangelism. He didn't get enough money from, from his church work, so he, he worked in the city center making tents. He discipled new believers. He trained pastors. He dealt with conflict in these new churches. He corrected bad doctrine. He disciplined those who had gone off track. He was imprisoned and beaten. You wonder why God worked through Paul? Because Paul made a conscious decision to be uncomfortable. To say that my comfort doesn't matter. What matters is that I serve the Lord. You know what? I'm going to have eternity for comfort. I don't need it right now. He knew his journey would be difficult, but when he was going into Damascus, he met Jesus. And at that point in his life, he was changed forever. And he gave up his idea of living for comfort. And he said, I'm going to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ, because this is what really matters. Well, what can we see then when we look at Paul's example in this text? And again, you say, well, I don't see that in the text. But well, you do see a man who cared more about his calling than he did his own comfort. Now, 
Again, you may be saying, well, I'm not going to do what Paul did. I'm not a church planner. I'm not going all throughout the, the Mediterranean planting churches and discipling pastors and, and, and traveling constantly for the work of the gospel. And we know that there are Christians today, right now, at this very moment, who are facing death for preaching the word of God and for Christians who are, are meeting together at the, uh, at the point of a gun. We know that. We know that families are being split apart simply because they're believers. But we're not experiencing that here. We're, we're, we're in the West. We're prosperous. We don't, we don't have those difficulties. So what do we learn? Well, Paul wants to spend a lot of time with them. This isn't theological as much as it is practical. So, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, he's following Christ, so let's do the same that he's doing. Spend time with people. Get rid of your comfortable Christianity. Embrace discomfort. What does this mean for you? It means opening your doors for people. Inviting people into your home that you normally wouldn't do. Spend time with people. Embrace discomfort. This is hospitality. Sacrifice your time to serve others. Invest in the spiritual lives of others in the church. Paul gave this example of training up younger pastors and preparing them for the work of ministry. Paul went to these churches. He was a mature believer. He goes into these churches where there's all full of new Christians, and he spends time with them. We, we can only imagine that he's sitting there with these people who have these same questions over and over, people who just don't get it. We saw that with Jesus and the disciples, right? Jesus would teach. These people lived with him. And they said, what do, we, what do you mean by this? They still didn't understand Jesus. So Paul, we can imagine, did the work of a pastor training and teaching from the Bible and preparing these people for the work of ministry. So start right there. So here's my challenge, and I'm speaking specifically to older members in this congregation. And I'd say this to any congregation, but to the older members of this congregation. Church growth does not happen without you. It's not made up. Many of you can remember days when this church sanctuary was packed. You remember the days when there was a thousand people here, ten times the attendance. And I know you want to see that again, but it does not begin with just attracting young families. That's not the way that it's going to grow. It doesn't begin with changes in the music that we play. Older members, if you want the church to grow, and I sincerely hope that you do, start right here. Do what Paul did. Adopt a younger family. Pour into them. Meet with them regularly. Babysit their kids. Read the Bible with them. Sit with them at church. Listen, Titus 2 is the go-to for older believers. This is, if you're wondering what your purpose in the church is, read Titus chapter 2. Hear me on this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I'm going to say this with as much gentleness as I possibly can. Older members, if you're not doing this, please do not expect this church to grow. It will not. 
If you're not doing what it says in Titus chapter 2, it will not grow. Regardless of what has been said, regardless of what you may think, the future of this particular church does not lie in future generations. They're important. The future of this church lies with those who are already here. And specifically, those of you who are mature in the faith, those of you who have wisdom, those of you who have experience, that's where the future of this church is. It belongs with you. You are right now laying the foundation for the future of this church. You may be confused as to what to do. It's not very difficult. It's hard, but it's not difficult to understand. Find a younger person in this church and spend time with them. Find someone that you don't know well and say, brother, let's meet for lunch every week. Find people in your church that need help. Every person over 60, find someone under 40 and spend time with them in spiritual discussions. Be their spiritual mother or spiritual father. I've heard it said that there are two seasons in our life that we have the, the, the greatest amount of impact for the kingdom of God. The first one is when we're young adults before we get married and have children. Got a lot of energy, don't have much money, but you got a lot of energy, have more free time. You've got a schedule that's fairly wide open. The second one is after retirement. Often when we, when we plan for retirement, we've got enough to, to at least get by, so we've got uh, uh, some money to, to, to be blessings to others, but we have a lot more free time when we're retired. And so the pattern of this is to say that when you're retired, you've got a lot of time to invest, to make the most of the life that you have left for the gospel work. And you may say, well, wait, that's just too hard. That's too much. I've never seen that happen. I, I don't understand this, and you're right. But again, I say this as gently as I can. Your comfort doesn't matter. But I understand that for some people it's hard and so this is why we've started community groups. We've got a few running right now. This is why we have people in our homes to facilitate these discussions so that people sit around a table and get to know one another and talk to one another. To have discussions with one another. This is why we meet every week. And, and, and older members, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this again. Do you know what we're missing in these? People over 70. They're not there. We need you. We need your wisdom. We need your experience. We need the valuable knowledge that you have from years and years of studying the Word of God. And the experiences that you've had from those years of difficulties and all the trials that you've made it through. And you still come out saying, I still trust in Jesus. We need that in the church. I need that. And every young person in this church needs this from you. We need your presence in our lives. We plead with you to step out of your comfort zone. And again, you owe it to both Christ and to the younger members of this church. It's not optional. You must invest in the future generations because the Bible says you have to. This will be, as a church, our push for the future. I'm going to talk about it a whole lot. 
You'll probably be asked to join a group, and the only way to stop me asking you to join a group is, well, by joining a group. So, so we will be pushing this. We will be pushing this on as many people in the church as we can. And this is a job of the elders, as the elders were called to lead, and we're not doing our job if we're not pushing you to grow and to be stretched. My son trained for, for about, uh, I don't know, a couple months with Brian Long. And Brian, I watched him as he pushes these kids to, to points where they don't like him very much sometimes. And he, he, he pushes them and pushes them, and they wanted to stop, and he causes some of them to throw up. All, I mean, it's just it's very difficult what the training, some of you have been through that, where he's made you throw up all over the place. He's pushing you to get better, to get stronger, to get faster, to get through those mental blocks that those young athletes have where they say, I can't do this. And he says, yes, you can. You can do this. But you don't get to be a good athlete by being comfortable. You become a good athlete by constantly over and over challenging yourself and facing discomfort. And this doesn't go with just sports. This goes with all of life. You do not achieve success unless you get through multiple levels of discomfort along the way. And I'd say the same thing for our Christian life. If we want to grow as believers, as individuals... And if we want to grow as a church, we must embrace discomfort in our lives. And it sounds, though, and you may be thinking, well, why are you just talking to us? You're only speaking and preaching to older members that the only recipients of this would be the younger members. That, that, that the younger members are just going to sit back and receive things. No, that's not what Paul says here. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Why? So that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. This pattern of Paul's life is that he's constantly seeking ways to edify Christians, but he needs some of it too. So being part of, of a community group and spending time with younger people in the church will absolutely benefit younger generations. But church, it will bless you too. Paul says, I, I need to go there to bless you, to edify you, to train you. But at the same time, I need to take in some of this as well. And I could say this with full sincerity. I've yet to meet someone who's 60 years old and older, who regularly meets with younger people, who will come to me and say, yeah, I just didn't get anything out of it. Every single older Christian that I know who invests in the lives of younger Christians will tell you, I may get more out of it than they did. Every single person. That, that constant discipleship, that living a life of discipleship, blesses the disciplee and the discipler just the same. And Paul gives us this example here. And I can't stress this enough. It's not just our church. It's nearly every church. This generational divide uh, it comes and it, it, it splits churches in half and no one seems to know what to do about it. And the easy way would be to go opposite of what Paul did and just create a church where everybody's the same age, everybody's from the same background, everybody looks the same. That's not healthy. Older members, you owe it to the Lord. And you owe it to us to do what Titus 2 says. And I'm not talking about just inviting someone to a Sunday school class or, 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 or uh, taking them out to lunch one time. I'm saying do what Paul did. Spend significant time with people who are outside of your comfort zone. This is your legacy. This is what God has called us to do. 
all of the examples of the saints that we see are people who embrace discomfort. They didn't like it. They didn't enjoy it. They didn't seek it out. But they said, you know, the Christian life is never intended to be easy. So I'm going to understand that this is a difficult journey, that I'm going to understand that, that my life may be hard, but it's all designed to make me rely more on Christ and to push people in that same direction. This is Paul's ministry and life focus. Now back in our text, Paul tells the church that he doesn't want his visit to be brief. Again, he wants to spend significant time with them, but he can't come immediately. He will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. He writes that God had opened some doors for him there, and you can read all about Paul's adventures in Acts chapter 19. Things were going well in his story, and people were getting saved, but Paul also faced significant trials in Ephesus. And you can imagine how much he looked forward to that day when he could come to Corinth and he could see all these believers that he has played a part in their story and in their life. And he gets to celebrate with them and, and read God's word with them. And they could sh go to the streets and proclaim the gospel to the lost together. And then in verses 10 through 12, Paul gives this uh, statement about Timothy and Apollos. And he says this. When Timothy comes, see, to, see that, that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, uh, with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Timothy was a partner of Paul. Uh, a lot of interactions in the New Testament between Timothy and Paul. And Paul was worried that he would not be treated well in Corinth. I'm not sure why Paul included this. Um, you can make an argument that where Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 uh, to let no one despise you because of your youth. And Timothy was younger. Again, we see this pattern. Paul mentoring and discipling younger believers and younger people in ministry. But Paul may have meant something else. He may have meant that he was afraid that Timothy would be rejected because of his connection with Paul. You say, well, what does that mean? Remember chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians? This conflict that was happening. The, read, read in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12. This is what was happening in the church. The same letter that Paul's writing, chapter 16. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, for that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize all, also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There were church members who preferred Apollos. There were church members who preferred Peter. There were church members who preferred Paul. And then there were others who just said, you know what, I'm just of Christ. I don't follow anybody. And so you would think 
Paul is, is the chief of all of this, right? Paul is the one that's writing half of the New Testament. Paul is planning churches. Paul is connecting with people. Paul has a name. He, he's a, a celebrity, at least of, of this day. And so you would think that, man, Paul would get irritated. I'm not going to invite Apollos. No way. People may start to like him more than me. If I give up my standard or my standing, people may follow after him and not listen to me. And Paul says, no. I asked Apollos to come visit. I wanted him to come. I never blamed him. And in fact, Paul strongly urged him to visit Corinth. Because Paul believed in the power of the church. And he says, Apollos can help. Apollos is necessary. He's not a challenge to me. So what are we seeing here? Again, this is pastoral care. Paul deeply cares for the people in the church, and he wants to do everything he can for them in their spiritual growth. He suffered for their sake. He spent a, a great deal of time correcting them. Not so that he can always be right or they can follow after him, but rather that so they can grow in their faith. And even though Apollos delays his visit, Paul still encourages him to come. Think back to what we've seen in the first 12 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul, who is the most influential person in our faith outside of Christ, has been traveling around the Mediterranean, training pastors, equipping churches. He's modeled what a discipler looks like, and through this letter, he's given people an example of his spiritual maturity. But think what you've seen for the previous 15 chapters. Paul had to be tough with this church. They were uh, uh, instances uh, where they seemed to be doing everything the wrong way. In, in other cases, there were just some tweaks that needed to be made. See, God gave Paul gifts to use in his calling. And those things, those gifts that he gives to, to pastors and to church members, those often come at a cost. If God gives you the gift of, gift of hospitality, you know what? You're going to be uncomfortable at times. You're going to be cooking for food when you don't think you have enough time. You're going to be cleaning toilets when, because guests are coming over. You're, you're going to be scrambling to try to make your house clean. By the way, you don't need to do that. But you're going to be scrambling to do that. It's not comfortable. It would be easier just to sit back on your couch and say, eh, I'm just going to watch TV. That's not what Paul did. God gave Paul gifts and he used them. He suffered great physical pain and emotional pain from trying to train Christians who refused to listen to him. Paul gave so much of himself to his ministry and some people just ignored him and went their own way. But even though he knew that there would be difficulty, Paul never quit. He still wanted to visit, at least for a few months, with people who caused him trouble. If I had to deal with what Paul had to deal with in chapters 1 through 15... Um, I probably would do my best to avoid that church and to try to run and try to get away and to do something else other than serving those people. I was thinking a lot about our own congregation, our own church this week, working through this passage and working through this sermon and mostly about how to apply this to our lives because it's not a, a passage that's very straightforward. You, you kind of have to pick and, and pull things out of it. I kept thinking over and over again how easy it is for me to seek out comfort. 
I thought about how Paul could have avoided the Corinthians to, to get to Corinth would have been difficult. It would have been hard to get there, and yet he says, I desire to be with you. So I thought about our own fellowship. I thought about every church that I've ever been a part of, and I realized that we're no different often than the world outside of these walls. We seek people who are just like us. We seek out people who we look like and sound like to spend our time with. And so here's a question for you. Think about your circle of friends. Think about those that you, outside of your family who you spend time with. How often are you with someone two generations younger than you? Do you have close relationships with the people of different ethnicity? Like close relationships. I'm not saying like just your neighbor. I'm saying people who know you, who you've invited to be part of your life, who you've bored your, bared your soul to, who know your thoughts, who know your sins and your tendencies, who know your weaknesses. You're transparent with them. How many relationships do you have with people from a vastly different economic status than you? I'm not talking about manufacturing relationships, but I'm saying in a church like ours, with the age differences that we do have, there is absolutely no excuse for us to not have crossed uh, uh, relationships that, that cross those boundaries. We must. And I know it's not easy. It's hard to invite someone you don't know well into your home. It's hard to invite someone from a different age background into your life. It's hard to be transparent, to share your fears and your sins with others. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. But you must remember what Jesus did for you. Remember all of what Christ has done for you. How uncomfortable it was for him to become one of us. Left the perfection of heaven to come here. Remember how uncomfortable it was for him to suffer at the hands of those he came to save. Remember how uncomfortable it was for Jesus to hang on a cross as people mocked him and spit at him. Remember all the saints who have given their lives for the cause of Christ. Church, I mean this with all sincerity that I have. Please do not make excuses for why you're not investing in the lives of others. Please do not say that you're busy or that you don't have time. Because we all know that we do. We make time for what's important. We make time for those things that we value. We make time for people who we value. We, we carve out time for them. My prayer is that you see the same need that Paul saw. I pray that you not only see that need, it's all around you. If, if you look, there are needs everywhere. But I pray that you do something about it. It's not just enough to know. It's not just enough to recognize that there are, are, are things that are needed, but we must, we must go out and do it. That's why we're having a food pantry, and not just a food pantry, but a feeding program. We're doing that because we see a need, and we can meet that need. So we see it, and we respond. Jesus commands us to make disciples. Again, I know that I'm stepping on toes, and please don't think that I'm angry, because I'm not. I'm overall frustrated with myself and frustrated with the entire church, not just our church, but the entire big C church. I'm frustrated that we are simply not being obedient to the call to make disciples. Jesus says, go into all the world and don't make converts. He says, make disciples. That requires time and effort and energy. It's an investment. 
And if we're not doing that, we're disobeying the words of Jesus. Making disciples means being involved in the messy part of people's lives. If you're not doing that, we're not obeying Jesus. This is not a position that any of us need to be in. Now, I know this morning I've stepped on toes and I've broken feet. And I'm moving up the leg. I'm hitting your knees at this point. And I get that. That's part of my job. This is one of the joyful things that I get to do is every week I get to read God's word and I get to apply it to my life and see how much of a failure I am. And then I get to come here every Sunday and tell you how much of a failure you are as well. And we get to sit there and we get to all be sad together. I don't enjoy that. But, but, part of my job is to examine God's word, to apply it to our lives and step on each other's toes and you step on mine so that we go out and we move. If I start stomping on your feet, you're going to move your foot, aren't you? You're going to move. You're going to go away and go do something else. This is what I'm here for. I'm here to motivate us to change, to see where we're not doing what we should do so that we go out into the world and we make disciples just like Jesus told us to do. It's part of my job. I'm here to make you uncomfortable. And I challenge you, examine what I'm saying through the lens of Scripture. Hold up the Bible. See if what I'm saying is true. If it's not, reject it. Throw me out. But if it is, what implications does that have in your own life? Paul pointed us to Christ through his writing and through his life and through his example. And just like Paul, we need to seek out discomfort because discomfort often leads to obedience. Would you pray with me?